Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we're going to talk about a novel type of radiotherapy that uses neutron capture to irradiate tumors from the inside. We also learn about how some dead stars can be born again and find out why some think that quantum sensors are the stepchild of quantum technologies. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics. Are you a scientist working in renewable energy, wearable sensor technology, display materials, or infrastructure sustainability? You have the opportunity to present your research at the world's leading forum on electrochemistry and solid-state science. Submit your abstract by April 8th for the 242nd Electrochemical Society meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, in October 2022. Visit the ECS website at electrochem.org for details about abstract submission. And join ECS in accelerating science. Radiation therapy has been used to treat cancer for over a century. But despite the remarkable advances in its efficacy and safety, there are side effects associated with radiation being absorbed by healthy parts of the body. Physics World's Tammy Freeman speaks with the CEO of a company that is developing technologies for a new type of radiotherapy that minimizes this absorption by attacking tumors from the inside. Radiotherapy is a widely used cancer treatment in which tumor cells are destroyed by ionizing radiation. This radiation is, in most cases, delivered from outside the body using beams of X-rays or particles such as protons or carbon ions. Modern radiotherapy techniques can target the tumour with high precision and minimise unwanted irradiation of normal tissues, but still the beam always has to travel through the body to reach its target. Now there is another approach in which the tumour is irradiated from the inside out. And that's the idea behind a biologically targeted radiation treatment called boron neutron capture therapy, or BNCT. I'm speaking today with Bruce Bauer, CEO of TAE Life Sciences, a California-based company developing both BNCT instrumentation and boron-carrying drugs, with the overall aim of bringing BNCT into the clinical mainstream. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Tammy. Thank you for having me. So I wonder if first, could you explain how BNCT works, how it kills cancer cells, and how it does this differently from the more commonplace external beam radiotherapy? Sure. So BNCT is a combination therapy. Rather than having to image the tumor and map it and aim external radiation physically at the tumor cells, which inevitably results in some irradiation of healthy tissue on the margins or, as you pointed out, on the entrance or, or exit of the beam. 
With BNCT, we're able to biologically target the cancer cells. We know that radiation is the most effective way of killing cancer cells. The challenge has always been, how do we deliver that radiation accurately at the cellular level? With BNCT, we benefit from the use of a drug to begin with. And the drug provides the biological targeting of the cancer cells specifically by delivering a payload of, in our example, boron-10. Boron-10 by itself is safe, inert, non-toxic. It doesn't do anything therapeutically against the cancer cells. So it's safe in that sense. And we just developed drugs that can allow the boron-10 to accumulate uh, into selectively into the cancer cells. Once that has happened, then we irradiate that boronated tissue with low energy neutrons. And these, again, the neutrons by themselves don't do anything therapeutically against the cells. But when the boron 10 captures a neutron, there is a little reaction that occurs at the microscopic level inside the cell. And a couple of high energy charged particles, alpha particles, are generated. And the path length of those particles is very short, five to nine microns, which is less than the diameter of the typical cell. So that entire reaction stays inside the cell. And those particles, when they hit the DNA of that cell, they do a double strand break, which is deadly and, and, and fatally damaging to the cancer cell. So we're killing the cancer cell from the inside out and we're sparing doing any damage to adjacent cells that may well be healthy. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a healthy tissue sparing approach at the cellular level. Uh, and with that come you know, a lot of uh, positive attributes for uh, the patient in, in uh, the effectiveness of the treatment. Well, I mean, that sounds like a really great cancer treatment. So why aren't we seeing BNCT in clinics everywhere already? Well, we certainly hope one day that we will. Uh, the challenge has been historically uh, the only source of these low energy neutrons uh, had to come from the core of a nuclear reactor, typically a, a research reactor somewhere. And while you know those maybe a dozen in their peak were available historically to uh, try this technique in a research fashion, uh, obviously it was never going to scale to anything that was practical on a clinical level. And many of those reactors today have been decommissioned or shut down. So the first problem was you didn't have a, a practical, easy source uh, of these neutrons to use. Uh, although there is a drug that's out there and was developed historically that can deliver the boron uh, 10 to the cancer cells uh, reasonably well. Uh, that drug is called borinophenylalanine, BPA for short. We can, we can talk more about that uh, a little later. Um, but the biggest problem historically was that you, you didn't have a source of these neutrons. So um, how is TAE Life Sciences addressing this problem of generating the neutrons? Well, the first thing that, that we realized was we had technology that we could uh, develop and tailor for this purpose uh, using advanced particle accelerators. And with that, we could take a, a proton beam and use it 
uh, with a lithium target to produce these low energy neutrons very nicely tailored for uh, the clinical use uh, of BNCT. And that could be installed in a practical way in a hospital clinical setting. So we started out uh, by developing the instrumentation for, in our case, is a tandem, very compact, uh, space efficient tandem accelerator uh, that can generate the neutrons with a clinical grade uh, system. You can put it into a hospital and bring patients to it, treat them uh, each day, every day reliably. Uh, and so that, that's the first problem that we were able to solve. And then the next one is being able to develop more drugs, advanced drugs, improved drugs that can uh, do a better job of delivering the boron 10 to cancer cells than the current BPA drug does. And while that's a great drug and everybody will be using it uh, to begin with, uh, we do expect that over time uh, we will have improved drugs uh, that can do uh, an improved job and make BNCT applicable to uh, additional types of cancer. Okay, so, so I mean, what's new about these um, these drugs that you're developing? Do they, is it better targeting or sort of more more cell killability? Or the way we can improve on the the current drug is several fold. One is we can just deliver more boron uh, to the cancer cells than BPA is able to do. Um, the more boron you can get into the cancer cells, the more reactions uh, you will have when you irradiate that tissue uh, with the neutrons, and the more of those reactions, the more effective uh, the uh, efficacy will be for uh, this, this technique. Uh, we have drugs now in the pipeline that uh, deliver two, three times more boron uh, than BPA does. And we are in seeing with some of our early animal exper uh, experiments uh, exactly that, that the, the uh, tumor control is significantly better uh, with higher boron delivery. The other attribute is being able to have better targeting where you can uh, put more boron into the tumor than uh, would be going into surrounding uh, healthy tissue uh, and, or, and being able to also treat uh, other kinds of tumors besides the ones that BPA has traditionally been used for, uh, which are uh, recurrent head and neck cancers, uh, glioblastomas, the brain cancers, and melanomas. Uh, we believe with additional drugs, we can target other cancers like lung cancer, uh, brain, other uh, brain cancers, uh, liver cancer, uh, breast cancer, and so forth. Okay, great. Um, and then last September, you installed your first system at um, Xiamen Humanity Hospital in China. Can you tell me a bit about this installation project and how things have progressed since then? Yeah, sure. The, the uh, installation in Xiamen um, is the first one. Uh, it's, it's gone uh, rather well, um, despite the challenges of travel uh, that uh, COVID has uh, put on, on everyone. Um, we got first neutrons uh, in the third quarter uh, last year uh, from the device uh, and then proceeded from there to uh, continue commissioning the system uh, and starting the small animal work uh, that our partner there needs to do with their locally sourced uh, BPA drug uh, so that they can gather the data for their regulatory filings uh, in China. Uh, that work is continuing uh, as we speak. Uh, the system is continuing to be uh, commissioned. Uh, the animal work is continuing. And uh, we expect that uh, sometime by the end of the year, uh, they'll be in a position to treat the first human uh, with that. So the, the facility is a showcase uh, installation uh, for BNCT. Uh, more will come in, in China uh, with our partner there. 
but this first one is going well, despite the, the, the longer time frame that it's taking us to get things done, just because it's difficult to get our teams over there. Uh, we have a team, we've maintained a team there, uh, but adding additional talent uh, in a timely way uh, is not as easy as it was before COVID. I can imagine, yeah. What's next for the company? Well, our mission is to bring this technology to clinicians worldwide. Uh, and that for us means uh, Europe uh, and, and the US. We are making great progress with uh, sites uh, in Europe. We have a contract that we signed with a big uh, National Hadron uh, facility in Italy, uh, a leading uh, uh, high LET particle uh, treatment uh, cancer center. Uh, they're putting our system in. They've already broken ground on the building that it will uh, be housed in. Um, and we expect that that will be installed in the second half of, of next year. Uh, so in Italy will be the, the first uh, European site for us. We have MOU signed with two other sites uh, in Europe uh, that we, again, hope we will start construction on those uh, between now and, and the end of the year. In the U.S., uh, we which is very important, obviously, for, for us, uh, we have uh, two MOUs, uh, Memorandums of Understanding, signed with medical centers to uh, develop a BNCT center on their medical campus. Uh, and we're in discussions with uh, two other ones uh, to add to those uh, that we hope to get signed this year. Uh, our goal is to have two or three sites up and running uh, in Europe and two or three sites up and running in the U.S. Uh, over the course of the next uh, three to, uh, to five years, um, treating patients, gathering the data uh, and seeking regulatory approval uh, for this technique. Okay, so a few other companies developing similar accelerator-based neutron sources and um, treatments with such systems have already started in Japan. Obviously, you've got this um, first installation in China and lots more upcoming. Can you predict or when do you envision BNCT could become like a standard cancer treatment in hospitals worldwide? Well, you're right. Japan has been sort of ground zero for uh, BNCT. They've been investing in this technology for decades uh, and they have a great uh, clinical uh, set of installations there that are uh, using this. It's now uh, BNCT is approved, uh, has regulatory approval in Japan uh, for treating recurrent uh, head and neck cancers. Uh, and uh, they have made application for uh, additional cancers to treat, uh, GBMs uh, for one, which we would expect to come uh, as well over time. Uh, so they are advanced, uh, and we can look at Japan as, a, as certainly a, a barometer on where the rest of the world will be going uh, over over time. Uh, and there are other companies uh, out there developing uh, these these solutions with uh, accelerator tech, different accelerator technologies uh, to produce the neutrons, um, and this will be contributory to a, a BNCT industry uh, with several vendors. Uh, the demand, the unmet need for this tech. Uh, technology is huge. Uh, so there's there's uh, many uh, opportunities for several companies to, to contribute to this solution. Uh, we are the only company that's taken upon ourselves to develop both the drug technology uh, and the uh, the device. Uh, so that's, that's a heavy lift uh, for us, but we felt it was important to have control over the full solution. Uh, and we will be providing our drugs. Uh, our, our aspiration is to uh, make our 
advanced next generation boron target drugs available to the whole industry, uh, not just to sites that have our hardware uh, radiation system, but to uh, anyone that is treating patients with BNCT uh, could use our, our next generation drugs uh, in, in time as they are uh, eventually uh, approved. So uh, we do expect that somewhere in the next three to five years, you will see uh, a uh, significant uh, increase in the number of BNCT centers worldwide that are treating patients. And while there are several in Japan today, uh, when you look out three to five years from now, you will see them scattered around Europe uh, and, and the U.S. and other parts of the world uh, as these accelerator-based systems uh, get installed, get commissioned, start treating patients. Uh, the nice thing is we have BPA to begin with, and that will be uh, the drug of choice, uh, I'm sure, for uh, a number of years uh, because of its uh, long clinical history. Uh, and then we'll see what the new drugs uh, achieve in terms of uh, their acceptance and their regulatory uh, studies and clinical trials uh, toward approval um, over the course of time. That's obviously developing new drugs is a, a long process um, and will will be driven by uh, the safety and the efficacy of the data. Brilliant. I mean, that all sounds really promising. Um, I, I look forward to seeing where this, this field goes. Um, well, thanks very much for speaking to me today, Bruce. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. Stars are born, go through several stages of existence, and finally die, sometimes in spectacular explosions, or sometimes just fading away. But some stars can be born again, and astronomers using the European Southern Observatory's ALMA telescope have just published a study of a star called V605 Aquilae, which has received a new lease on life. I'm joined down the line by team member Ramlal Unikrishnan, who is a PhD student at Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden. And we're going to talk about what he and his colleagues have learned about born-again stars. Hi, Ramlal. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. So, Ramlal, astronomers believe that some white dwarf stars can be born again, what exactly is a white dwarf star? Well, a white dwarf star is one of the multiple possible end stages in the life cycle or evolution of stars. So uh, these stars, which are uh, like when they are alive, uh, stars which have around less than eight solar masses of material, uh, they tend to become these uh, objects called white dwarfs at the end of their evolution. So um, the, I can briefly describe the evolutionary process as these stars after, uh, the, after they finish the nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium in their cores, uh, they become they, the, the outer envelopes of these stars expand and they become bigger, redder objects called red giants. And then for most of these stars, the material of this outer envelope is gradually ejected into a very visually beautiful phenomena called a planetary nebula. And then the remaining core, which is very dense, actually extremely dense, uh, is, becomes what we call a white dwarf. And the name suggests that these objects are uh, white as in they are very hot, but there is no longer any nuclear fusion 
taking place in the star. That is why we term it as a dead star. But it's still very white and it's it's very small. So it can typically be around the size of the Earth. That is why we call it a dwarf. Uh, but but sometimes um, the, these white dwarfs can, can, can be born again. This process is expected to occur via a helium flash. Well, what is a helium flash? And, and why do astronomers believe that some white dwarfs experience this phenomenon? Yeah, a helium flash is a complicated phenomenon that happens towards the end stage of these kind of stars. I mean, some helium flashes happen even before the stars become a white dwarf. And so what we mean essentially by this term is that, let's say, as I previously said, in some of these white dwarfs, uh, sorry, in, in all these white dwarfs, the outer layers are ejected. But let's say that in a few of these, some hydrogen and helium is left over on the surface of the white dwarf. And this will be in the outer region of this leftover core in shells. And then this hydrogen will be still fusing to form more and more helium in the outermost shell. And the helium thus formed is continuously being deposited very slowly into the inner helium layer, which is also on the outer surface of this uh, core. And then at some point, because of the continuous um, in a continuous addition of helium, the critical mass, the, the, the mass of helium available in these stars becomes above the critical mass required for the fusion of helium into heavier material like carbon. And then as soon as this happens, the, the start of helium nuclear fusion initiates in a very explosive fashion. And this is what we call a helium flash as in, we term it a flash because it is something that accumulates gradually but then happens very quickly, like, like you flash a torch or something, and then it happens in a very explosive manner. And, and, and so what happens, what, what happens to the star after this, this helium flash? Is it sort of back up and running again? Is that the, um, the born-again bit? Or, or is this really just a flash that, that happens for a, a relatively short period of time? Yes. Um, actually, both, both the things you said are true. Uh, this makes a star back up and running in that sense, but only for, let's say, a very small amount of time, which we initially thought was around, let's say, 10,000 years. But now recent observations suggest that it can be as small as a century. So these, these phases come back alive for around 100 years. And then the, the star is star still becomes visible. And the, these objects uh, are very weirdly curious in a way that they are already surrounded by a planetary nebula which was ejected from its, let's say, previous life. Um, and then inside this planetary nebula at the center, we have a new star which is again fusing elements into heavier elements and emitting radiation. So this is what we call the bone again phase of the star and this yeah, this is relatively short-lived and to add to that i can say that uh, the main interest in observing these stars for the astronomical community is also it, it also lies in the fact that these phases are precisely very short-lived because if we observe the evolution of a star usually this is a process that takes millions or even billions of years depending on the mass of the star so the smaller a star is the more uh, its lifetime, 
so let's say on average this uh, s the a star takes at least like billions of years to move from its formation to whatever end stage it ends upon but these objects that we are studying now they allow us to probe these uh, main the main processes happening in this otherwise very extended uh, evolutionary timeline in a relatively human observable period of around 100 years so that is that is what makes us primarily interested in this kind of object so yeah and and actually the first born again star was identified just over 100 years ago in 1919 but it wasn't until 1995 that astronomers really began to understand these stars what what was observed in 1995 uh well uh i i would i would say that when we say the first born again star was detected in 1919 i don't think that's a correct way to put it uh i what we could put that in a better way to say that in, in as far back as 1919 itself scientists had noted that okay in some of these objects which we took we called white dwarfs there is some variations in intensity which were unexplainable but nobody called them born again or we did not have any clue that this is what is happening in these objects and the whole discovery as such of a born again star it happened in 1995 not in 1919 because even though these some fluctuations in intensity and very short lived phases were observed in these stars as far back as a century we did not have enough high resolution instruments or related instrumentation or telescopes to actually zoom into these objects and resolve these objects and see what is going on there which we do have now and so coming back to your question in 1995 this the first of these stars was actually discovered not by a professional astronomer but by a japanese amateur observer named uh, yukio sakurai and he reported this to the international astronomical union that he has found a new star uh, but i i don't think he knew that what he was what he found as a new star was even a white dwarf and then when when this new star it was supposed it was thought to be a star and then scientists of the european southern observatory pointed several of their telescopes mainly the one in chile in a, the lasia telescope and they found it very surprisingly that uh, the object that they found and believed to be a new star was not actually a new star but it was a star that has gone through its entire life sequence but uh, had again come came back to life so this is what happened in 1995 and then from that time onwards uh, we have been observing these curious objects through successively better instrumentation as time passes and right now we have imaged the molecular emission from this for the first time using the alma interferometer and and so what have you found you you you've taken another look at at v605 aquilae what 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 sort of new observations have you made and and what has that allowed you to conclude about born again stars uh what uh what we found right now is a molecular emission coming from this kind of a source so when i say molecular emission what uh, we mean in astronomy by that is that um, there, there can be several types of emission for example in the case of the normal white dwarf that we talked about before 
we could still see them even though they i mean no, not with the naked eye of course but with a telescope in a different frequency range you could see the white dwarfs because they were still thermally radiating so these were very hot objects and part of that thermal energy was being converted to light which we could detect with telescopes at different frequencies even though not in the optical but then when we say molecular emission uh, this is radiation that is formed by the electronic transition or the rotational or vibrational transitions of the between the energy levels of different elements or molecules and this has not i mean we we have observed uh, such things from born again stars in terms of spectra and so we 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 kind of knew i mean it, it was not it was like a search in the dark but still we we had some idea what to look for but this is something nobody has actually seen before as an image so we managed to image how this molecular material is distributed in the envelope around this born again star what we found is so we 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 detected four molecules including carbon monoxide and we uh, we with with the high resolution of the alma interferometer it is now finally possible to actually map how the material is distributed around these objects and we found that the most of the molecular emission and also the dust around these objects it's uh, distributed in a very swiftly expanding disk like structure around the star and then there is also some kind of an outflow in the form of two very sharp jets which emanate from this star to in two opposite directions from this disk and this was a bit surprising to be honest that we would find such a structure from a, from a born again star and yeah so uh, this is what we basically found and then we estimated several parameters from our observations like uh, how much uh, carbon monoxide or how much dust is can be present in in these disks and outflows and then we calculate the velocity of this emission and things like that and we have based on our find the present findings we are planning future observations in even better resolution of both v605 aquile and also the sakurai object itself and a, and and a disk is is isn't that something that you would you would see w- when a star was was actually being born out of sort of dust and and gas how how did a disk form around this very old star or or maybe that's something that 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 needs further investigation yeah uh, we have a possible theory but we like you said uh, we need further observations and theoretical studies to confirm this so what at least what we believe now is that yeah like you said we we would expect a disk like structure uh, when uh, in a region of star formation like for example around a protostar or something and then from this large disk the planets form later so there this is this is this is a very co- a disk is a very common observed structure in astronomy but then when the helium flash actually happens i mean since it is an explosion it is i mean at least by common sense it is expected to be spherically symmetric so if you if you explode something it just bursts open in in all directions but what we see is very clearly a disk so what we think uh because the, there are also these jets that are described along with the the disk what we think is that these sources uh they might not be single stars that died 
but these could be what we term as binary objects. So two very nearby stars which orbit a common center of mass. So and th this kind of a binary system is very common. And even the 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 brightest star that we can see in the night sky, Sirius, is a binary system composed precisely of one white dwarf and one other star, and and the brightest star. So what we think is so when one of these stars becomes a white dwarf and then it further undergoes the helium flash the the material is ejected as we expect and then because of the orbital motion of the companion of this white dwarf so when it moves through this material it kind of drags it along to form this uh, disc like structure that we see and it's uh, we know from other observations of other sources that when this kind of a event happens when one object drags along material ejected by a companion, there is a very high chance that these kind of bipolar jets can also emanate from such a source. So this is what we believe in right now. But at, le at least what, this is what we propose. But then the thing is, uh, we do not have any instrument which can actually like just look for and see if there is one star or two because the stars are by themselves extremely small compared to these envelopes and ejections. So we will not have any kind of instrumentation that can actually separate these two stars at a very, very close by distance, not, not at the present and not in the foreseeable future. So we have to look for other methods. And what we think is if we study several of these um, sources in detail. So we, we already have some ALMA observations of the Sakurai subject. And we could see a very similar outflow structure from the Sakurai objects also. But then the data we had previously that we have right now is not that well resolved. So we, not, we do not really resolve the outflow, but we know where the emission peaks. So we can make some kind of rudimentary plots. And so with that preliminary analysis, we are now planning to propose for very high resolution data from ALMA. And then we, we believe that this would bring to light at least some claims that either support or refute our proposed theory. I mean, that's how science happens. I mean, we can, we can never know for sure if what we propose is true. But this, is, this seems to be the most plausible explanation as of right now to us. And so you've got this disk um, surrounding this, this star. Is it, is it possible that you could get planet formation within that disk? Or is that just a, a completely crazy idea? <laughs> so the, the, the star having a second go at, um, at having planets. I'm, I'm really not sure how to answer that with the data we have right now. Like I said, we would have to, for example, the, the theories we have right now of planet formation, and we, we have pretty good theories of how this phenomena happens, but they, those theories have been based on our accumulated knowledge of observations of thousands of such regions and objects. Uh, so, But this is a very relatively new observation, and we... We, we, don't, we don't even have a very big sample, even if we want to observe them, because the born-again phenomenon is at least now known to happen only in a very handful of objects. So um, I think it's a bit far-fetched to, to think of something like that with the data that we have right now. But um, let's see how the further studies go. And Ramlal and colleagues have published a paper about V605 Aquilae in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. 
It's free to read on the IOP Science website. Just search for the title, First Images of the Molecular Gas Around a Born-Again Star Revealed by Alma. Thanks for being on the podcast, Ramlal. Yeah, thanks for having me. It, It was a nice experience to talk to you as well. A familiar saying in the world of quantum technology is that a noisy qubit is just a good quantum sensor. The idea is that qubits are easily disrupted by environmental factors such as magnetic fields, and this sensitivity can be taken advantage of to create high-performance sensors. But maybe it's not that easy. As Physics World's Margaret Harris found out at last week's Quantum Business Europe conference. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Hamish. So, Margaret, you've written about the conference on the Physics World website, and I was surprised to see you describe quantum sensing as the stepchild of quantum technologies, because you're pretty keen on quantum sensors, aren't you? Well, yeah, um, really, of the three branches of quantum technologies, so quantum computing, quantum communications, and quantum sensing, if I had to choose, I would actually say that quantum sensing is my favorite because firstly, it sometimes involves cold atoms, which is my PhD field, so always something that's dear to my heart. And second, as you mentioned in your intro, it's really the epitome of making lemonade out of lemons, uh, using the fragility of quantum states as a, as a feature rather than a bug. So I just, I, it just really appeals to me from that perspective. And my final reason I, I like it so much is it's got a ton of potential practical applications out there. And these applications, I thought, are a lot closer to being reality, as in commercial reality, than some of the applications of quantum computing and, and quantum communications. And so what are some of those applications, Margaret? I mean, I mentioned magnetic field detection, but there's more than that, isn't there? Yeah, well, I think you know magnetic field sensing is, is a huge aspect of it. Um, another major area is gravity sensing. So you can use cold atom inf- interferometry to detect either the local acceleration due to gravity or changes in it, the gravity gradient. Um, but on the magnetic side, there's a lot that you can do with just being able to sense tiny magnetic fields down to the nanometer level. Um, you can do failure analysis and quality control on semiconductor electronics. Um, you can map the flow of current through nanoscale devices. Um, and in the, life, in the life sciences, you can do basically nuclear magnetic resonance imaging on a cellular, even a molecular scale. And, um, you know, really exciting things like sensing the presence of the free radicals that are implicated in the development of cancer and other types of cell damage. So there's some great applications both in life sciences research and in medical diagnostics. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you, Margaret, on, on sort of the excitement of quantum sensing. And, and the thing that I find particularly fascinating are all the various schemes out there for detecting gravity. C- can you talk a bit about those? Yeah, um, gravity sensors are starting to be used in geophysics and civil engineering, particularly to detect changes to the local density of the Earth's crust. Now, these changes could be due to subsurface voids like pipelines or culverts or aquifers below the surface, or mineral deposits, or even, you know, sort of underground structures like nuclear bunkers. So listeners can probably guess who might be interested in finding those kinds of things. And then a longer term use, um, one that's really sort of coming to the the forefront now, is to combine gravity sensors with very detailed maps of the Earth's local gravitational field. And between the two of those things, you can then use quantum sensing for a geolocation, 
So to tell to pinpoint exactly where you are on the Earth by the structure of the Earth's subsurface, essentially. And that would be a satellite-free and jamming-resistant version of GPS, essentially. And it's again, it's easy to see who might be interested in that. Yeah, definitely. We had a we, we had a, a, a fantastic story um, a few weeks ago about some researchers at the University of Birmingham who who actually took their their ultra cold atoms um, outside in the university and and. Uh, use their gravity detector to, to find a tunnel. And, you know, this is a tunnel, basically, maybe that just one person could walk through uh, a, a very small structure, but uh, it modified the local gravity and they were able to use their, their quantum sensor um, to find it, which I, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And, and as I said, you know, these types of detectors and sensors are already proving themselves in field trials and some of the medical applications, you know, there's already commercial products out there. So I thought, you know, maybe naively that actually, you know, this was this would be the area that uh, sort of people interested in commercialization would be most keen on. But one one thing that you mentioned in your article, um, so, sort of rather surprisingly, is 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 the fact that there are lots of applications that could be a, a a problem for people developing quantum sensors. Why is that? Well, it's not really my argument. It's an argument I heard from a guy called Henning Zoller, who's a partner of the consulting firm McKinsey. Um, Zoller was giving a talk last week, as you said, at the Quantum Business Europe conference. His talk was called Best Practices in Investing into Quantum Technologies. And essentially, his entire talk just focused on quantum computing. I think he mentioned quantum communications a couple of times, but quantum sensing just didn't seem to figure at all. And I thought that was kind of strange, especially as I'd just seen a great talk about quantum sensing at the same conference by um, Gabriel Puebla Hellman who's the CEO of a quantum sensing firm called QZaber. By the way, all these companies have Qs in their names. It seems to be like a requirement. <laughs> yeah, it's a rule. A it's rule, a rule, definitely. So yeah. anyway, so having just seen that talk, I asked Dollar about the market opportunities in quantum sensing. And you can read an outline of his response in my blog, but essentially from an investor standpoint, or even an entrepreneur standpoint, the fact that there are so many possible applications to quantum sensing means that it's hard to know which ones will hit the big time. And that makes it a more difficult market for investors to enter and for entrepreneurs to explain. Um, so the idea is that you know, you know, investors want to invest in something that's going to be really big. And what's actually happening in quantum sensing is that because of this proliferation of applications, quantum sensing as a market may actually favor this sort of rich ecosystem of small to medium-sized companies rather than a few giant ones. And in many ways, that's great. I think it's exciting and fun to work in an industry like that. And it's one that needs a lot of highly skilled people, especially physicists. But the chances of any single one of those companies becoming like a tech unicorn and making its investors, you know, stonking great wads of cash is really pretty low. So I think quantum computing is higher risk in the short term, and it may not actually get anywhere at all in the short term in terms of commercial applications. But it's also much higher reward. Um, you know, there's areas of quantum computing can be applied to are things like logistics. Um, every company has logistics problems. So you can see there's absolute gigantic market if we can make a quantum computer that can sort of solve logistics problems, which is a big if. Uh, or pharmaceuticals for drug development, if you can make a quantum computer that can uh, find the, the new cancer drugs 
is it lots of times faster than the traditional methods, then that's an instant sort of multi-billion dollar international market. Um, quantum sensing, you've got lots of little markets out there. And I think that's why quantum computing gets the hype and quantum sensing doesn't. Hmm. Yeah, well, that, that, that makes sense, definitely. You can read more about the challenges facing the developers of quantum sensors in a blog by Margaret on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Why Quantum Sensors Are the Stepchild of Quantum Technologies. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Margaret. Sure thing, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Ramlal Unikrishnan, Bruce Bauer, Tammy Freeman, and Margaret Harris for joining me. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do check out our other podcast series, which is called Physics World Stories. Every month, host Andrew Glester takes an in-depth look at a topic that's close to the heart of the physics community. It's covered muon mania, the love that physicists have for Lego, and much more. You can find all episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.